Good morning. Uh, as we get started today, there's something that we need to cover, some really important business. I'm an IU fan, but way to go, Purdue, taking down the Buckeyes, unbelievable. Can I just say, IU will never do that, okay? So I was cheering for you guys last night. I woke up, I could not believe the final score. It was unbelievable. So I'm so happy for you and a little jealous all at the same time. Hey, I got a quick question for you guys as we get started this morning. How many of you, and I need your participation here, how many of you have kids? Raise your hand, okay? How many of you hope to have children someday? All right. And how many of you are just freaked out by the sights and the sounds and the smells of kids in general? Okay, it's okay. You can raise your hand there. That's, that's okay. That's okay. Now, for those of you that have children, I want to speak to you for a moment. If you don't have kids, I want to invite you to take some really good notes because you're going to learn something here that you need to know. If you have children, have you ever had them interrupt your regularly scheduled programming? Of course you have, right? That's, that's just parenting. But have you ever had them do that in the middle of the night? Of course you have, right? That's just, that's just parenting. That's just what happens. I heard a guy telling a story this week about his daughter walking into their room, calling out for mom and kind of mooing like, mom, you've, you've heard it before if you're a parent, right? And he woke up and he had the presence of mind to not move. He woke up and he barely opened his eyes and he saw the clock and saw that it was 2.39 a.m., which I don't know about you, but is way too early to be up for any reason whatsoever. And so he made the decision. He said, he admitted this, I laid there and I pretended to be asleep. Now, I laughed. When I heard that, I laughed out loud. I thought, what kind of horrible human would lay in bed and pretend to be asleep knowing that your daughter is in need, knowing that your wife is gonna have to get out of bed. And while I laid there and laughed, I thought, wait a minute, I do that all the time. I did that earlier this week. And I'm not proud of that. I've confessed that to my wife. She knows, and, and I'm trying to get better. And I respect her too much to ask if she does that too. Although I think that there's been a time or two that she's probably pretended to be asleep. But that's just kind of what you do when it's that early, when it's that early in the morning. And so parents, wouldn't it be nice? Can you imagine what it would be like? I just, I know this is gonna sound crazy. But if your kids thought, I remember when dad went to bed last night, he was really tired. I bet I could get my own drink. I remember mom's got a big day today. I can probably go potty all on my own or better yet, I'm just gonna lay here and soothe myself. I want them to rest. Can you imagine what it would be like to come to the breakfast table and for your children to say, oh my goodness, you look so rested this morning. I want you to know I'm putting your needs ahead of mine. Now that is never, ever, ever gonna happen, okay? If that happens, Jesus is at your front door. It's time for us to go home. But wouldn't it be nice? In fact, wouldn't it be nice? Now, I just wanna say, for those of you that don't have kids yet, I know what you're thinking. This guy's a terrible person. I'm warning you right now, there will be a day where you're gonna have to make that decision. Will I lay here and pretend to be asleep or will I get up? I'm not gonna judge you for whatever that you do. But can you imagine what it would be like to actually have people, the little people in your life, for everybody to put your needs ahead of their own? I mean, wouldn't it be great if everybody in your house just thought, gosh, you've got a lot going on. I should just, why don't you do, how can, what can I do to make your life easier? And then when you went out on the road, everybody knew, well, they're, they're clearly, they're in a hurry. I need to get out of their way. They would let you run red lights. They would do whatever they needed to do. They'd get out of the fast lane so you could get where you were going. And if the people at work just thought, you know what? You're pretty important. You should just do whatever you wanna do all the time. Now we chuckle at that and it would be nice, but I think deep down we know that's pretty selfish, isn't it? I mean, there's really no other way to describe that other than selfish. And, and none of us like to be around selfish people None of us wanna be known as selfish people. 
In fact, let me ask you a question. Who is your favorite selfish person to hang out with? I asked my wife this question. Who's your favorite person, selfish person? I didn't know what she was gonna say. And she said, oh, bless your heart, it's you. <laughs> and I thought, I, I, kind of ex- I kind of expected that, right? Now, whether we like it or not, we all battle with selfishness, every single one of us. And no one wants to be selfish. No one likes to hang out with a selfish person. But here's the thing. For those of us that follow Jesus, we know that he was the most selfless person to ever live. And he calls us to imitate him. But here's the sad thing about selfishness. The truth is it's a major roadblock for us when it comes to growing our faith and being more like Jesus. And today we're wrapping up a two-week series called Fish, Feet, Faith. And the goal of this series has been to challenge us to grow our faith by learning to serve others, by putting their needs ahead of our own. And last week we talked about the famous story where Jesus fed 5,000 and he walked on water. But what we saw in that story, he said these words, you have little faith. He was challenging the faith of his disciples. And the whole point we talked about was Jesus says, why don't you do what you can do and trust me to do the rest. And in that process, your faith will grow. And as our faith grows, our relationship with God grows deeper. And the more deep our relationship with God is, the more he can use our lives for his glory in in, in our everyday lives. And here's the thing, that's not easy to do, is it? But according to Jesus, this shouldn't just be true on paper. This isn't just theory. This should be our reality. But for those of us that follow Jesus, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just gonna assume that some of you are like me. I just get in my own way. My own selfishness robs me of the opportunity to put the needs of others ahead of myself. And if ever there was a group of people that we could look at to say, you know, I need to see somebody that's done this and done this well, what would that, who would they be? You would think that it would be the first men that followed Jesus. You would think that those guys, the hand-selected 12 guys that watched him minister to thousands upon thousands over and over again, you would think those guys would get it because think about this. They traveled with Jesus and they saw him touch and heal people that everyone else avoided. And they, they saw Jesus make a point to spend time with people that everybody else ignored. They even saw Jesus cast demons out of people that scared all the other people away. And so if ever there was this group of people that we could look at and say, those guys get it, how did they do it? It would be Jesus's squad of 12, right? I mean, how could they miss it? But in the gospel of kind of Luke, Luke tells us that those 12 men that follow Jesus everywhere, that learn from him personally, Apparently they viewed things a little differently than Jesus did. Look at what Luke tells us in Luke 22. He says this, they, the disciples, began to argue among themselves about who among them would be the greatest. Now, can you imagine how dumb, how dumb would you have to be to know Jesus physically in person? He is one of your friends. He has hand selected you to travel around with him. You've watched him do this thing. You've watched him model humility and selflessness. How dumb would you be to have to get involved in this conversation with an earshot of Jesus? I mean, either Jesus was a terrible teacher or I think the only other option is they were just a bunch of dumb men. And that's probably more true, right? But here's the worst part. Now, no amens from you ladies. We get it, we get it. But if you keep reading in Luke 22, here's the part that's kind of heartbreaking. In Luke 22, Jesus is in his final hours. He's sitting down to eat his last meal with those guys. Can you imagine how heartbreaking it would be for Jesus to hear them bickering about who is going to be the greatest, knowing that your time with them is limited? And to their credit, 
They had just come into Jerusalem a few days before. And if you're familiar with the story, everybody everywhere was ready to make Jesus king. And so maybe they were thinking, gosh, when he becomes king, well, we're all gonna have jobs to play in the palace. And they're arguing about which of them is gonna be the greatest. Now, that makes sense, but still, it's safe to say they were missing the point bigly. They just did not get it. What would it be like for Jesus to hear that conversation? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you be mad? Wouldn't you just wanna use your divine power to strike them blind or give them the stomach flu for just an extended period of time to teach them a lesson? And here's what's crazy. One of those men, one of the men that was arguing about who was gonna be the greatest, his name is John, one of Jesus's best friend. Of the 12 disciples, he was one of Jesus's close three. And he wrote five letters in the New Testament. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the book of Revelation. And in John chapter 13, he gives us his eyewitness account of the dinner where they sat down, where everybody was arguing about who was gonna be the greatest. And that's where we're gonna spend our time today. So if you wanna join us there, you can flip to John 13. You can click or swipe there on your phone or tablet. And the Bible's around the room. It's gonna be on page 751. But remember, they're sitting down to their final meal together and look at what John 13, one says. John says this, it was just before the Passover festival. So people from all over were in Jerusalem. This was a big deal. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father and having loved his own. Well, who were his own? His own are the 12 disciples. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Think about this, Jesus knew, John tells us, Jesus knew his hour had come. What does that mean? He knew that very shortly he was going to be arrested and beaten and crucified. Can you imagine the mental anguish that would come with knowing that? And then look at what verse two says. The evening meal was in progress. They had been sitting down eating for a while and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot to betray Jesus. Now that's pretty heavy right? The devil is going to prompt one of his friends to sell him out. That's a different sermon for a different day. But look at verse three. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. Now, did you catch that? Jesus knew that his father, who was his father? The God of the universe had placed all things everywhere under his power. Another translation says under his authority. So here's what this means. At this moment in time, everything everywhere reports directly up through Jesus. If ever there was somebody that could say, I'm the greatest, Jesus could say it right at this moment. And it goes on to say, John goes on to say, he knew that his time had come. He had come from God. He knew that he had been in God for eternity and he's getting ready to return to God, which is hard for us to even wrap our minds around. But here's the thing. Verse four begins with this word, so. But before we look at that, I want you to imagine that you're Jesus. Think about what you know about you and how you respond to people. How would verse three and four read if you were Jesus? And so let's just rewind back through Jesus's life and think about what we know. 33 years ago, you left the comforts of heaven to be born into this earth to peasant parents. And, and I would challenge you to find anything in those 33 years of his life on earth that was easy. And on top of that, you were, you, there's this story that your mom conceived you by the power of the Holy Spirit, but nobody believed that, which meant that they would probably say some pretty terrible things about your mom. 
And they probably had some pretty awful names that they would call you. And you just would grow up in that shame of nobody believing the story. But your parents said, no, 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 don't listen to that, Jesus, you're special. God has a plan for you. But then you live 30 years of life in just total obscurity. Nobody is aware of who you are and you're just kind of waiting for God's plan to unroll in your life. And then at the age of 30, God prompts you to go see this guy, your cousin, John the Baptist, out in the wilderness, who's beginning this spiritual movement, saying the kingdom of heaven is near, repent and be baptized. And Jesus knows that he needs to go be baptized and he's baptized. And when he comes up out of the water, you hear God speak and say, you are my son, I love you. I'm pleased with you. And still no one takes you serious. And so for the next three years, you recruit this group of men to follow you around and to show them what it looks like to live as God is your father. You show them humility and selflessness. You model it for them day in and day out. And now here you are, you're getting ready to sit at this final meal. And these jokers are arguing about which one of them is going to be the greatest. So with that in mind, how would verse three and four read if it were you? I've thought about this, and this is what I think this would look like for me. So Jerry knew that the father had given him authority over everything, and that, every, that he had come from God and he would return to God. In verse four, so he spent the next hour laying into his disciples for being so dumb that they totally missed the point of everything he'd ever tried to teach them. And then he said, you guys are dead to me. I'm out of here. And he punched the wall and he left the room in a rage. I mean, it would just be so frustrating and you would be like, Jesus, I totally, that seems reasonable to me. These just guys, they don't get it. But thankfully Jesus isn't like me and he's not like you because look, look at what he did, verse four. So in light of the fact that they were arguing about who was gonna be the greatest, in light of the fact that he knew that his time on earth was limited. So he got up from the, the meal and he took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, I'm gonna guess for some of us today, maybe you're hearing this story for the very first time. And if so, that, that's awesome. I want you to pay very close attention to the details. I think you have an advantage over the rest of us that have heard this story a bunch. But I wanna look at this story and I wanna slow way down and I wanna look at it from the perspective of the men in the room. In fact, I wanna invite you to put yourself in that room around that table and think, about what's happening here. Now you probably already know this, but in first century Israel, the roads were made of dirt. And so when it rained, it was muddy, but on top of that, you shared the roads with animals, which meant you were kind of walking like this to avoid their little gifts and presents that they would leave for you in the road. So people's feet notoriously were dirty. They weren't just dirty, they were filthy. And having your feet washed for an occasion like this would have been a pretty big deal because you wouldn't have to worry about embarrassing yourself and soiling the host's rug, okay? But on top of that, here's the kicker. Washing someone's feet would have been the job of the lowest servant in the house. I mean, this is the rookie. This is the intern. This is the guy that no one else trusts to do anything else. You're washing the feet of these people. And here's the thing, you would have done it when they came into the house, not at some point later. And it's interesting that John tells us they'd been sitting down to eat for a while, but no one had thought to do any, anything about anyone's feet. And you can't help but wondering if it was because they were arguing about who's gonna be the greatest and they were waiting for someone else to do that because they were just above that. And this is where Jesus steps in. And, and I want you to pay close attention to this. Thankfully for us, 2,000 years later, John recorded this picture with just incredible detail so we could have a vivid mental picture 
of what was going on. John tells us that Jesus took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around him, indicating that he was probably just wearing a loincloth. So he would have basically been standing there in his underwear in the fashion of a slave. And as it turns out, there was a basin of water available for the task of washing feet. I mean, we know this because he grabs it and he does it. But again, no one thought to do anything about it because everyone was too focused on themselves. And, and the one who was truly the greatest was getting ready to do the one thing that no one wanted to do for anyone else. And so there they were, those 12 men and whoever else may have been in the room watching their master, half naked on his hands and knees, doing the dirty work of a slave. Now, as some of you might know, uh, this last year, I received my master's degree, which meant that in June, my family traveled to Lincoln, Illinois, so I could walk across the stage and get my diploma. I didn't wanna do it, but my wife thought, this will be a great thing for our family. So we went and we did it, and it was, it was a great time. And when we arrived on campus, we had to go to the chapel, and as we were walking into the chapel, I walked right past this statue. It's actually a very impressive statue. Those people are probably as big as me, maybe a little bigger. And when I walked up to it, I thought, oh, this is the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. That's probably Peter. And honestly, I gotta be honest with you, I didn't really stop to admire it. I just kept walking by. I didn't take a moment to point it out to our kids. I just kept moving. In fact, I had to get this picture online. I didn't even take a picture of it. We are so familiar with this story, but I just want to take a moment to look at this picture. And I realize this is an artist rendering, okay? And we could pick it apart artistically all day long. But I think if we stop and look at it, I think the artist just captured the essence of what's happening here. And as I've prepared this message, I just keep coming back to, man, look at this. Look at what he's wearing. Or better yet, look at what he's not wearing. Later in one of his other books in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, John tells us in Revelation 4 that Jesus is seated on his heavenly throne in unapproachable glory so bright and shining that John really couldn't even tell what he was looking at. But here in John 13, in his final hours with his disciples, he's wearing next to nothing and is in a position of submission. And look at what he's doing. In verse one, John tells us that Jesus knew that his hour had come. He was gonna die soon. But here's the thing. Apparently he wasn't in so much hurry that he couldn't do the one thing that no one else wanted to do for anyone else in the room. And look at his posture. In verse three, John tells us that Jesus knew. He recognized the fact that the Father had put all things under his authority, everything everywhere reported directly up through him. But now he's stooping down on his hands and knees and the very hands that crafted the universe are holding his disciples' feet and gently washing the muck off of them. Now take a moment to put yourself in the room and that's the scene. I'm gonna guess they were shocked and I'm gonna guess no one said anything for a while. And all you could hear was the dripping of water running down their feet, dropping into the basin. And then you'd hear a soft pat, pat, pat of a towel as he dried their feet. And then you'd hear the basin slide across the room to the next person until all 12 sets of feet were washed. And get this, Jesus even washed the feet of the man who was getting ready to leave to betray him. Now take a moment to look back at verse one. John says, Jesus knew that his hour had come for him to leave the world, to go to the Father. And having loved his own, having loved his disciples who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What does it mean to love someone to the end? 
Well, if you've ever really loved someone, you know that means you love them no matter what. There's nothing that they could do for you to not love them. And so how did Jesus show the ones that he loved, that he loved them till the end? He loved them by serving them in the most radical way imaginable. And we cannot afford to miss this. We can't afford to just blitz through this story. And it's, it's hard for us in our Western mind to imagine how radically humbling this would have been for Jesus and how humbling it would have been for his disciples. It would have been unthinkable. In fact, if you keep reading in John 13, one of his disciples freaks out and says, you will not, you will not wash my feet. And Jesus says, no, 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 this is the way, this is the way this needs to be. And after washing all of their feet, look at what he says in verse 12. Do you understand what I have done for you? And I don't think his tone was condemning. I don't think it was shameful. I think he's just asking them a question. Do you understand? In light of the fact that you've been arguing about who's the greatest, do you understand what I've done for you? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, that's what I am. He doesn't lay a guilt trip. He doesn't pretend to have false humility. He knew who he was in relationship to his father. And he knew who he was in relationship to his disciple. And he acknowledges the fact, look, if anyone was great, if anyone was great, in fact, look at what he says. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, now that we all know who the greatest is in the room, now that I've done this for you, now that I've washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And then guys, I gotta be honest with you. I read this story several weeks ago for the first time again as we were preparing for this. And this next verse caught my attention and I just sat there and I kind of put my Bible down and thought, oh my goodness, I've never, ever, 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 ever seen this. And if you're taking notes and you wanna fill in the blanks, these are, this is directly from the mouth of Jesus. Look at what he says. Now that you know these things, now that you know what it looks like to actually be great, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And I don't know about you, but I think for me, sometimes I think that greatness is equated to how much I know. How many times I've read through scripture, how much I know about a certain thing, if I can look something up in the Hebrew, the Greek, whatever it is, how deep of a spiritual conversation, how many of those conversations I've had in the course of the week, I just think Jesus is saying, well, that's good, but a faith that runs deep doesn't just know. A faith that runs deep does something with it. And isn't it interesting that in this moment when no one wants to do anything to wash anybody's feet, Jesus doesn't say, no, wait a minute, what are my spiritual gifts? I'm a pretty killer teacher. I can heal people. I can multiply food with my hands. So really, I mean, you could argue that I really shouldn't get these hands dirty because they make food. He doesn't say that. He just jumps in and starts doing what he knows to do. And if there's anything that we can learn from Jesus here, I think he would want us to know that knowing is good, but doing, doing is great. Following Jesus is important. Following Jesus is the beginning of eternal life with God as our father in heaven. But that's just the beginning because according to Jesus, growing our faith by serving others in his name is true 
greatness. If you go back to Luke 22, when they were arguing about which of them was gonna be the greatest, look at what Jesus tells them in Luke 22, 26. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like the servant. How does that play in our world today? That, that's not a very popular thing. Like the greatest is just on top and the greatest, everybody kind of clamors to them. And Jesus says, that's not the way, that's not the way this is supposed to be. And so with that in mind, I wanna introduce you to somebody from here at Genesis, here at the Carmel campus actually, who I've got to know over the last year and I'm watching this guy model this. He, he would never tell you this, you would never know. He owns his own company. He leads people. He's in the business of leading people but I think in his life, he's discovered what this looks like for him, how he can be great in a way that maybe people wouldn't expect. Check this out. I've been in Living Carmel for about 20 years and stopped in at Genesis one Sunday and really fell in love with it. And that was last November and we've been coming ever since. When I heard there was a need in the Gen Kids area, I jumped right in because I'd had some experience in working with children in an environment like this. I knew that I, I could not hear that there was a need and not take some action. One of the reasons I serve really is because Christ was the model for service. He called us to serve. He taught us, he showed us how to serve by going to the cross and dying for us. And so when I hear a call from, from Jerry or, or Steve or others, that our service is needed, that my service is needed, then I have a model in Christ on exactly what to do. There are so many ways that we can serve here at Genesis, and whether it's in the Gen Kids or um, any of a number of ways, I think just putting our, our skills to work, putting it in the hands of Christ, and letting Christ do the hard work for us. If you've been on the sidelines and hesitant to serve, I wanna invite you personally to come back and serve with me and Gen Kids or serve out front with the bagels or greet new people as they come. Find some way to put your skills to work. I invite you to come serve with me. Now the thing I've got to love about Pete is he's a really humble dude and he would have never wanted to do that video, but I'm like, Pete, this is why we want you to do this. You're just, you just come and do what you do and you love these kids. And that's just one way to serve. But here's the thing that I think that, that Pete has discovered. The mission, being on mission with Jesus means that we follow him, but we follow his example to serve everyone, everywhere, all the time, regardless of who they are or who we are. That's how Jesus defines greatness. That's how he defined it for his disciples. And he says, hey, look, if you follow me, I want you to make disciples, but you earn credibility by serving people everywhere that you go. And so here's my question for us. How can you and how can I join Jesus on this mission? And here's the thing. I don't want to assume that none of you are serving anywhere. That's not true. Many of you serve. You're faithful in serving. Or maybe you serve outside of here on a regular basis. And I just want to say thank you. That, that's tremendous. But I also know that there's opportunities for us to model this in our everyday lives. And so here's a question. What would it look like for you? Maybe for some of us, it's going to start at home by elevating the needs of our spouse and our kids or our roommates or our parents above our own. And we don't complain about doing stuff around the house. We just, we do it and we find ways to do it to, in, in love to serve people. Kids, if you're a kiddo, if you're a student, what would it look like for you not just to do your chores or to do the minimum, but to do things in a way that express to your parents, gosh, I love you. Thank you for doing this 
for me, or as you guys go to school this week, I want you to find, what's Jesus, maybe he's calling you to serve people in the hallways or students or, or your teachers or professors, and especially the people that everybody else marginalizes. What would it look like to serve them in the love of Jesus? Maybe Jesus is gonna call you to serve people that you work with, your coworkers or your boss, or maybe you're the boss and he's gonna say, hey, I want you to wash their feet, not so they are more loyal to you, but so they can see and understand what servant leadership looks like. Maybe it's gonna be in your neighborhood. Maybe you have a neighbor that you're praying, God, would you please move them? It would make my life a lot easier. And Jesus says, actually, they're gonna be staying put for a while. What if you loved them and served them and caught them off guard with the goodness of God. Can you imagine what it would what would happen if we embrace this mindset everywhere all the time? And look, I'll be the first to admit this is really hard. Cuz you know who I think of first? I think of me. I want what I want and I want it now and that's just so different than what Jesus the way he lived and what he modeled. So imagine what it would look like if we started doing this. Now I'm sure all of you know this, but here at Genesis we would love to invite you on that mission with us of serving everyone, everywhere, all the time. And here's the beauty of being on mission with Jesus. He doesn't call any of us to do that out on our own by ourselves. He calls us to be on mission in community. And so when we gather together on Sunday mornings, guess what we have the opportunity to do? We have the opportunity to practice serving one another in very simple ways so we can get really good at it here, and then we can go out and do this in the world around us. And as we serve one another here in our faith community, you know what's gonna happen naturally? We're gonna become stronger. Our relational ties become stronger. And as we become stronger as a community, I think we're gonna naturally, we're gonna grow. It's gonna be so attractive that people can't stay away. And as we grow, guess what happens with this community? We gain influence with the community out there. And there's lots of places to serve here and out there. But if we're not good here first, I'm not sure that we're ever gonna make a really big impact out there. And now last week, we, I made it clear, we are not looking for volunteers. We do not need any volunteers. We are looking for servant-minded people. We're praying for an army of servant-minded people that wanna join us on, on this mission and following Jesus's examples. And I don't care where you serve. We have a variety of places to serve from the front door to the cafe, to the host team, gin kids, GSM on Sunday nights. We've got some amazing people that are doing this, and we want to invite you to be on mission uh, with us and with them. Just this week, one of our women's groups got together, and they were talking about this idea of serving. And I think many of them actually serve on Sunday morning, and they were trying to brainstorm ideas of, well, what are other ways we can serve the church community? And they said, well, what if we started visiting people in the hospital? I thought, that's, that's a great idea. How can, how can we do that? One of them said, what if we were able to make food for people in a, in a moment of need? They didn't even know this. We have a team that does that. It's called the Helping Hands Team. And if you enjoy making food for somebody that has just had a baby or that's lost a loved one, you can join that team today. One of them had the idea, what if we were able to serve people on the anniversary of a loved one's death? What if we, what if we were able to figure out a way to let them know they are not forgotten? I just think that would be incredible. Uh, this week, we had, I had the pleasure of talking to a lady named Katie, who's one of our members here. And she said, I wanna come and, and wash windows and, and just do touch-ups around the campus. I, when I drop my kids off for school, I'll have time to do that. And I actually really enjoy doing that, which I thought that, that's fantastic. 
I got to have coffee with a young lady named Claire this week who has always been really intimidated about serving with middle school girls. But she said, you know, I, after hearing that Jesus, you know, oh, you have little faith. She said, Jerry, I think I can put my faith into action by serving them. And here's the beautiful thing. She has survived middle school and high school and now college. And now she gets to go back and help lead this next wave of girls in following Jesus. Last week, we got our first parking team volunteer. It's a sixth grade boy. We have one. We're gonna give him a gun and some batons and say, go to it, buddy. And if you don't like that idea, I wanna challenge you to serve with him, okay? The gun's already been ordered. It's on its way. So we're gonna need your help. I wanna tell you about some folks. Um, Paul and Larissa Commons and Des and Janelle Woodruff who work at the Welcome Tent, you know why they're out there? Because they expressed a desire to meet new people. And, and they said, we just, we love meeting new people and helping them get connected. You could join them. But here's the thing. This is for all of us. This is what church, this is what a church family looks like. This is what we do. And so we're gonna end service a little differently today. In fact, at least I'm gonna invite you to come on out. And instead of playing a song where we're gonna sing together, I wanna invite you to take a moment and to pray. And just ask Jesus this question. Hey, Jesus, where can I join you on this mission of serving everyone, everywhere, all the time? And again, please understand, the, the assumption isn't that you're not doing this. But if you're not, we would love to invite you to join us. And so I, do, I want you to take the next little bit of time and just pray in silence. I know it's gonna feel a little awkward, but ask him this question and see what he says to you. Where might he lead you? What's he been nudging you to do? How could you grow your faith? So take a moment and pray that, and then I'll bring us back and close this out together. Jesus, I'm so thankful for your example. That when those men that you loved to the end, it would have been so easy to just blow up on them, but you said, ah, oh, I guess I'm just gonna show them. And I'm so thankful for your example. And for your simple words, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you go and do them. Father, would you move in us as a church family? Would you continue to move in us as a church family? Not just to punch a card, not just to volunteer, but to serve. Lord, I'm convicted that I honestly, truthfully, I need to put the needs of my wife and my kids ahead of my own and not just do things because I'm a dad or a husband, but to serve them because I'm a follower of Jesus. Would you speak to us directly? Would you move in our hearts? Holy Spirit, we sing to you. Would you move in our hearts? Would you raise up an army of servant-minded individuals that that's, what, that's why we would stand out as Genesis Church? That those are the people that love Jesus and serve him radically. Would you help us, Lord? We were doing the math this week. We need 60 people, at least 60 people, if not more, to really fill the needs that we have on a Sunday morning. But again, I just pray that you would move in the hearts of people like Pete and like the Commons and the Woodruffs and, and so many others to just serve out of a desire, not even to use our gifts and our talents and abilities, just out of joy to point people to you. Would you, would you raise up an army your army devoted completely to you and would you help us to get really strong on Sunday morning 
very consistent on Sunday morning so that we could branch out in the community and we could watch you do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. Would you grow our faith and teach us how to serve? In your name, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Hey, for those of you that serve, I wanna thank you. I wanna thank you. And I wanna challenge you. You've probably heard us say this. I wanna challenge you to invite some people to serve with you. Hopefully you're wearing your red lanyards. We've got the invites out of the info hub. Make those, make the ask, make the invite. If you're not serving, we've got some great folks at a table out here that says RSVP here. You can go ahead and sign up, ask questions. We'll follow up with you this week, but don't miss out on this opportunity to be great by following Jesus's example. We will look forward to seeing you guys next week. Have a great week.